All right, Genesis chapter 3. Maybe you can resonate with this experience. Uh, You wake up in the morning, you open the news, whether it's a physical paper on your phone, an app, or something like that, and you open the news to track what's going on in the world, in our society, and very quickly, you know, your heart rate starts to go up, it starts to rise, you begin to freak out and get a little overwhelmed by the brokenness and sadness that you see and read about in the news. I think this is a a common occurrence. Now, some of us responding to this may take on the habit of just not reading the news. You know, why bother uh, going through that stress? I don't want to feel that way, so I'll just forget about it. Others maybe submit themselves to that kind of daily suffering uh, and maybe eventually get to the point of pausing to reflect and maybe eventually come to the point of asking why. Why is everything in the world this way? Why is everything broken? You know, why do we have, you know, negligence leading to vehicular manslaughter? Why do we have war? Why do we have, you know, broken families? Why do we have terrible diagnoses from the doctor? Why? What is wrong with the world? Why are things the way that they are? Now, there's a a story I think it's an apocryphal story, but as the story goes, the Times of London uh, reached out to author G.K. Chesterton, you know, 100 years ago, whenever this was. They reached out to him and asked him to write an editorial for the paper, and the title of the article was supposed to be, What is Wrong with the World? And as the story goes, he wrote back to the editor and he said, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. Now that story, it's, it's a little bit, apocryphal or legendary, but as we're going to see in a few moments, it's very biblical, (laughs) thoroughly biblical. Now, as a church, we've been studying the early chapters of Genesis this fall, and the first several chapters, uh, the first several weeks, they helped us answer the questions of creation and identity. We saw God's design before things went haywire, and we saw who we are meant to be, and in doing so, it gave us a vision of something to strive for, who we can be, who we hope to be, where we hope to head. Now, last week, we got to chapter three, and Kevin, you know, helped walk us through the first half of the chapter, and we began answering kind of the second big set of questions that we're we're looking at in Genesis, the questions of why are things not the way they're supposed to be? If God designed it this way, what went wrong? What happened? Now, this week, we're going to continue to press into those questions, and I think it's it's so important that we do. Uh, Philip Reef once commented, he said, in past times, in past generations, people did not go to church to be made happy. They went to have their misery explained to them. It's kind of dark, but I think that's what we need too. I mean, we don't need a, a few laughs, you know, or motivation for happy hobbies, but we need a better understanding of ourselves and our world. We need the tools to face reality as it is not distractions to make us feel good about ourselves. And so this morning, we are digging into the fall. Here, we're going to the source. We're going to Genesis 3. And this chapter can be broken into into three sections. A little outline will will come up on the screen. But verses 1 to 7 cover temptation and sin. Verses 8 to 13, we'll see shame and blame. And then verses 14 to 24, curses and hope. That's the whole chapter of Genesis chapter 3. Now, last week is what we looked at the first part. Kevin taught us about temptation and sin. And so this morning, we're going to tackle the next two sections uh, of this chapter. Now, it is not a 
you know, preacher man exaggeration to say that you cannot understand the rest of the Bible if you miss Genesis chapter 3. Okay? You can't understand the Bible if you miss this chapter. I mean, trust me, go, go home, spend an hour uh, watching videos made by the Bible Project. And my guess is that in 90% of them, they're going to have some reference to Genesis 3. You can't escape it. it. It sets off the major plot line of the whole Bible. So, we're going to get into this chapter. You can follow along uh, as I read, but we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 to 24. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what, what Genesis says. And they, this is Adam and Eve, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let me pray. God, as we, as we sit under your word now together, we ask that you would speak. God, that you'd speak through these words to, to shape us, to open our eyes to things that are veiled, to, to understand what you would have for us. 
God, would we hear from you this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. We are talking about the fall this morning uh, and the entrance of sin into the world. And let me show you our outline of where we're headed. This is what we're going to look at and kind of examine this morning. We're going to look at the essence of sin. Okay, what is it? Where does it come from? We're going to look at the dimensions of the fall. You know, what's the damage? And then we're going to look at the seed of hope. Okay, what is God's response? What is God going to do about it? You ready? Let's dive in. We'll begin with the essence of sin. Now, the Bible's answer to what is wrong with the world is sin. Because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, we we all now live with a sinful nature and an inclination toward sin and rebellion. And as we'll see, everything in our world is affected by it. Sin touches everything. But we need to pause for a moment and ask, but what is it? What is sin? Uh, there's a British author named Francis Spuford, and he, he says that for many in our world, the, the word sin, it, it brings to mind nothing more than chocolates you shouldn't eat and lingerie. That's all that we think about when we think the word sin. Steve and I, we, we've gotten together over coffee many times and laughed about trying to pick out worship songs for Sundays like this, you know, because it's hard to find songs that deal with sin. You know, many of our songs will talk about brokenness and weakness, but we have to go back kind of to the really old stuffy hymns to find anything about rebellion or treason or wickedness or being a wretch like me. See, today, too often, we use euphemisms borrowed from our therapeutic age. Now, it's not all bad, okay, because it, it, that does help give us relatable language, um, to, especially to those who are unfamiliar with the big theological terms. But in doing so, it also can downplay our culpability, the fact that we are held responsible. So I'll ask again, what is sin? Well, in its simplest terms, sin is turning from God to the self, turning away from God towards the self. Now, just as God, as an idea, as a being, is more complex than just a single definition, so it is with sin. So, you know, we could reflect on Kevin's teaching last week. You know, we saw sin was disobedience. Sin was refusing to listen to God or heed what he said. Sin was rebellion. Sin was deciding for oneself what is right and what is wrong. And sin is parasitic, meaning it takes something good, but it takes it in the wrong way or at the wrong time or in the wrong amount. Now, these are are helpful aspects as we we kind of spin this thing around and look at it, helpful aspects for understanding sin. But at its core, sin is a reorientation of the heart towards the self. You deny the authority and sovereignty of God, and you enthrone yourself. Again, you may remember from last week, Adam and Eve, they reason themselves into sinning, and they choose autonomy, okay, to be their own law. Autonomy just means a law to oneself. They they want to be their own law, to turn from God's authority and claim authority on their own. So C.S. Lewis, writing in The Problem of Pain, talking about Adam and Eve, he says, they wanted, as we say, to call their souls their own. But that means to live a lie, for our souls are not, in fact, our own. They wanted some corner in the universe of which they could say to God, this is our business, not yours. But there is no such corner. See, sin is turning from God towards the self. It's trying to say, this is mine. Okay, I belong to me. 
So Augustine, he described the essence of sin as being curved in on yourself. Okay, you kind of take on this hunched posture and everything is about you. Now, this has implications for our relationships, not only with God, but with other humans and with the created order. Because the person who's turned in on themselves, thinking they are the final authority, they are the king or they are the queen, well, then they will necessarily mistreat others and mistreat the gifts that God has given us in creation. See, we then will, will use everything else for our purposes instead of learning from God the way they should be enjoyed. And the result is devastation. All right, that is the essence of sin. So let's turn now to the fall that results. After Adam and Eve sin, what is the damage? We can look at the dimensions of the fall. All right, we can begin by looking at, you know, we're going to measure it out, the dimensions of the fall. We begin with, with its height, okay, the vertical effects of sin. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, okay. Uh, verse 8, we see that the man and the woman now hide from God. Now, it's as, it's as comical as it is tragic. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. As if they can hide from God. But they try, nonetheless, right? They're, they feel exposed, but they're exposed in ways that no fig tree and no, you know, fig leaf could truly hide. Maybe you can think of a time in your life when you felt like that, totally exposed and caught doing something wrong. When I was in college, I, I worked in the dining commons at UCSB, okay? I, I got to wash dishes and, and prepare food and, and keep the hot stations full and ready for the students kind of coming through. And one of the stations I was working at, it was kind of hot plate style, and I had to make sure the plates and the silverware and the, the hot food uh, was constantly supplied, and someone would bring by a cart with all the, the clean dishes, you know, fresh out of the dishwasher. And so the person brought the cart over, and I needed to take these giant stacks of plates from the cart over to the counter where they'd be there for the students. Now in the kitchen, hard tile floor, rubber mats, you know, non-skid mats so you don't trip or whatnot, or slip rather. And so I go over to the, to the, the cart of plates, big, you know, stacks of 20, and I walk up to them like, I got this. I can get two stacks of plates, you know, and to, to carry it over, it'll be more efficient. And I go to grab it, and then I have a moment of, of Holy Spirit conviction or wisdom or whatever you want to call it, no, you should just take one. Like, be reasonable, be careful, only take one set of plates, not two. So I, I leave one behind, and I just grab one st stack of plates, and I turn, and I kick that rubber mat that's on the ground, and boop, I just, I just lose them all. The whole stack flies in the air, and, you know, in my memory, I can look back, and it's just everything happens in slow motion. I'm like, oh, no, you know, as the stack goes. And what happened was half of the stack, about 10 plates, hits the tile floor and just the loudest crash you have ever heard. You know, 10 porcelain plates just crashing on the tile floor. The other half of the stack, 10 plates, hits the rubber mat, bounces in the air, and then crashes on the floor. And so when you have these two separate noises, it felt like seven to 10 seconds of just sustained noise of plates crashing, you know, in the dining commons. And this kind of happens, and I look up, and the entire Dining commons, every student, you know, pops up from their studying or their bowl of cereal, they're like, boo, what's happened? And every employee, every manager in the room, their eyes are on me, and I'm just uh, exposed, fully exposed, like, there's nothing I can do. I have done this, I just stand there, I just have to own it, you know, ah, you know, the full sun of, you know, 200 eyeballs on me all at once. Now, maybe you have felt that feeling, uh, you know, caught. Maybe you know what it feels like to be just totally exposed and caught having done something wrong. 
Okay, that, that's a little bit of Adam and Eve, what they're going through. But they tried to hide. No, it's, it's so tragic once we get past the humor. It's so tragic because they had friendship with God. They had communion with the God of the universe, you know, in his garden. And now they hide in shame. I mean, Adam and Eve, they stood in the presence of God. They got to hear his voice directly. But now all they hear is just, just the sound of him, and they run and hide in fear. Something has happened. Having turned away from God, they are now separated from him in a profound way. The man and the woman, they can no longer stand to be in God's presence. They can no longer walk with him in his temple garden. They can no longer receive life directly from him. And so by the time we get to the end of the passage, they're banished, they're exiled, they're driven out to the east of Eden to work the ground outside the garden. See, the vertical effect of sin, its height, well, it means separation from God. We're cut off from God because of our sin. Now, before we move to the next dimension, it's worth noting that we choose to turn from God We hide ourselves from him, and then we experience exile. You know, our separation from God is ultimately chosen by us. So the fall reaches high, but it also reaches deep. We can talk about its depth, the spiritual effects of sin. Sin goes all the way in. The fall goes all the way in. As Romans 1 says, we become futile in our thinking, and our foolish hearts are darkened. We no longer see God clearly, nor do we see ourselves clearly. Adam doesn't just hide, he turns and blames God. Now, there's great, lots of irony in the passage. One of them is that Adam and Eve, they wanted autonomy. They wanted to choose for themselves, to have agency, you know, what was right and wrong. They wanted to exercise their will. And as soon as they do, they realize it's bad and they renounce their agency. They blame others. Oh, it wasn't me. It's not my fault. They turn on each other and they turn on God. Now, again, at first reading, we may find the scene comical. God knows everything. But then here he comes asking Adam and Eve questions. You know, kind of like a parent who stumbles upon a naughty child doing something wrong. Kids, maybe you can, you know, imagine a story like this. A a mom walks into a bedroom and finds her two kids, you know, little Billy sitting there uh, with his two-year-old sister, Sally. And written on the wall behind her two kids in big black sharpie letters, is the name Billy, just written right on the wall with Sharpie. And she looks down at Billy, and he's got a Sharpie in his hand, and she says, hey, who, uh, who wrote that on the wall? And he kind of sheepishly points to his two-year-old sister who can't talk and says, it was her. She did. That's kind of the picture here. Totally caught. They, the mom knows exactly what happened. God knows exactly what happened. And yet he comes and he asks them questions. What happened here? Now, we step out in autonomy, and then we're caught, and we hide behind excuses. We blame shift. And this has been the human way since the garden, and it continues on till this day. Now, our two main excuses for our sin, for where it comes from, our two main excuses are nature and nurture. Maybe you hear talk about nature and nurture in terms of personality. What made this person the way that they are? Well, that's all good in those conversations, but we, we use these things to excuse ourselves from sin. 
Both are used to distance ourselves from our sin, to remove our agency and our act of the will. We say, it's not my fault. It was the bad environment that I was in. It's not my fault. You know, I couldn't help it. So Dutch theologian Herman Bavink, he writes this. He says, this idea has it, and this will come up on the screen. He says, that man is good, that his heart is uncorrupted. The evil lies in the circumstances, in the environment, in the society in which man is born and reared. Take these circumstances away, reform society, and man will naturally be good. There will be no more reason for him to do evil. People reason like this all the time. You know, it's, it's, again, it's not me. It's my context. It was, it's the context is everything. But if, we, if we're not going to use environment, you know, as, as a reason to excuse ourselves from our sin, if it's not nurture, then the other option for blame shifting is nature. But not necessarily a sin nature for which we're responsible, but a nature, again, that excuses us. It's not sin. It's not my fault. No, it's, it's just written into my genetic code. Or it's my evolutionary impulses hardwired into me. You know, we descended from the animals and there's a part of us that's still animalistic. You know, it's not me who did the evil. It's my flesh. The, the ancients, you know, people like Plato, they had a similar line of reasoning where they thought, you know, that the problem was the physical. It was, it was matter. You know, it's, it's the flesh, but it's the physical world in general. And that your truest self was your soul. And, but because matter is the problem, because that's where evil lies, they hoped that their, their soul could be set free from their bodies, which was the problem. And they, they wanted liberation because, because the real thing to blame was, was the physical stuff. Now, in both cases, nurture or nature, were blame shifting. Now, again, Bob Inc., he's so insightful. He writes this. He says, both attempts at excusing our sin look for the origin or the seat of sin not in the will of the creature, but in the structure and nature of things, and therefore in the creator, who is the cause of that structure and nature. If sin lurks in circumstances, in society, or in sensuality, in the flesh, in matter, then the responsibility for it is to be charged to him who is the creator and sustainer of all things. And then man goes scot-free. See what happens? When we shift the blame, we accuse God to let ourselves off the hook. Isn't that what Adam did? In the garden, we read it. Having sinned and been found out, he turns to God and he blames him. He says, the woman whom you gave to me, you know, she gave me the fruit of the tree that you put in the garden, God. You did this. And then I ate. I mean, how many of us, be honest, how many of us have, have looked at the story of Genesis 3 and we've asked ourselves, you know, why did God even put the tree there if he didn't want him to eat it? I mean, if he didn't want him to sin, why even put it there in the first place? What are we doing when we ask that question? We're kind of upset or angry at sin and we turn and blame God and not ourselves. Now, don't miss this, okay? Yes, all of us, are set within you know, particular contexts and environments. All of us have predispositions or inclinations that have made it more difficult to not sin. Yes, that is true. Okay, we, we have stuff wired in us. We have family background. We have, I mean, maybe it's our blood, you know, we, or, or whatever. We have things that make it harder not to sin. 
But the Bible is radical in the dignity it gives to humans. Because the Bible says that nature and nurture do not remove your agency, your will, that you remain responsible for your thoughts and your desires and your actions. You still remain responsible. Yes, the world, the flesh, the devil, they are set against us. But at the end of the day, we are held responsible. Now, in our blame shifting, we turn and blame God instead of ourselves. And what this means is we're not only separated from God, but we're separated from ourselves. We delude ourselves into not seeing ourselves clearly. I mean, it's, it's, it's too difficult to look down the end of your nose to see a blemish, and, and we, we have a hard time seeing it ourselves, and so what do we do? Well, we just pretend it's not there, and we blame everyone else for seeing it, you know, because we can't see ourselves clearly. The fall extends high, and it goes deep, but also goes wide. Let's talk about its width and the horizontal effects of sin. See, we see the effects in the relationship first between the man and the woman themselves. Okay, the only two people on the planet at this point are already fighting. After sinning against God, their relationship with God is so damaged, it spills over into their relationship with one another. Their eyes are opened. They know they are naked, and so they, they, well, they start by attempting to cover themselves up. There's alienation, separation from one another. We can continue to see this in the consequences that are meted out to the woman. So Adam and Eve, they were created for one another, designed to draw near in love, and the result you know, would be loving embrace, fruitful multiplication. But now, the blessing of God is distorted. Multiplying will be painful, and the marriage relationship is strained. And we're told that, that her desire for connection will be interpreted as control, and then he will turn and use his strength to rule over her instead of, well, his job to provide for and protect her. But it's not just the marriage relationship that's ruined. It spreads further. Because we keep reading and find out it's not the, just the woman who will have offspring, but so will the snake. Evil will spread. And a spiritual battle will be waged now throughout the Bible. I mean, we can see this battle in the very next chapter with, with Cain and Abel, the first, you know, sons in the story. And we read, we find out Abel is the seed of the woman because he's, he offers the acceptable sacrifice to God. But Cain, well, God warns Cain. He says, don't give in. Don't be the seed of the snake. But alas, Cain, Cain gives in. He kills his brother and he shows to whom he belongs. The violence spreads. Sin spreads. And you keep reading through Genesis and evil and sin. They go wider and wider and wider. And they begin stretching from generation to generation out into the kingdoms of the world. Sin spreads and goes global. Such that by the time we get to the New Testament, we read about the world hating God's people. The world is, is against God's people. Sin has reached to the ends of the earth. It's gone so wide. And so we look at the problems of the world and we're forced to acknowledge that everyone has a sin nature. And now we can't help but sin against one another and be sinned against, and this further separates us. 
See, the fall has a wide reach, ruining our horizontal relationships with one another. So we've got separation from God. We've got separation from ourselves. We have separation from one another. The damage is high and deep and wide. And lastly, it's broad. And we can look at its breadth and the cosmic effects of sin. Adam came from the dust, and the consequences for sin reached down into the dust. The created order itself is desecrated because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. The original blessing of God, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over it. It's now turned into a curse. God's blessing was to receive and spread life through intimacy with God. But when Adam and Eve turn from God, the result is the opposite. Cultivating life now involves pain and struggle. It doesn't come easily. It will be painful to bring life from the womb. And it will be painful to bring life from the ground. See, in turning from God, they cut themselves off of the source of life. Now, yes, the curses, they are God's judgment on us. But as we saw in Romans 1 last year when we were studying chapter 1, his judgment ultimately is self-selected. He gives us over to what we have chosen. Now notice in, in the curses that Adam and Eve, they are not directly cursed. Okay? God curses the snake and the soil. Those are the only things that, that are, you know, we're told are cursed. So we could say we live in a world dominated by the curse of the snake, that's our war with sin, and the curse of the soil, that's our struggle with a now broken natural order. The created order itself is broken. Life outside the garden is hard. Life east of Eden, life in a, in a Genesis 3 world, is full of toil and pain and groaning. As Paul writes in Romans 8, the creation was subjected to futility. It is in bondage to corruption and has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves are also groaning. <laughs> the damage wrought by the fall, it's high and deep and wide and broad. And so some people talk about it with, with the phrase total depravity. Okay, that doesn't mean that, that everything is bad as it possibly could be. That would deny you know, God's general grace but rather that sin has touched everything. Sin touches everything. That's the world we live in. That's why there is war and racism and poverty and greed and disease and natural disasters and premature death and fractured relationships. Why is there pain and misery in the world? Because of Genesis 3. It's not a lack of education. It's not a lack of resources. It's not repression or coercion though all of those things can be sinful and contribute to the spread of sin, but ultimately, it's because of sin. Or, as Chesterton said, what's wrong with the world? I am. You are. We are. Now, while we look at the overwhelming dimensions of the fall, its height and depth and width and breadth, the amazing truth is that our God is bigger still. And even in our passage, we see signs and arrows pointing to his abounding grace. Okay? Though, though sin abounds, grace abounds even more. So let's turn finally to the seed of hope. Okay? You could ask, what is God's response to all this? 
Genesis 3 is bad news. Okay, there's no way around that. I'm sorry if you came this morning looking for something else. Genesis 3 is bad news. It's the foundation, you know, the launch pad for the drama of the Bible because it presents the problem that God must overcome. The rest of the Bible is about God overcoming Genesis 3. But even here, even here are glimpses of hope. And we see this first in Adam's faith. You say, Adam's faith? Where is that in the passage? Look at verse 20. Okay, it's kind of in the flow as you read it. It's kind of weird. just sticks out for some reason. But verse 20, after all the curses, we read this. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, Adam and Eve blew it, okay? They really did. Romans 5, because one man sinned, all sinned through him. Death reigned through that one man. Okay, their sin led to death for all. But Adam heard God's promise to Eve that though there will be pain, there will be offspring. Okay, there is yet a future. And so in an act of faith, Adam names her Eve, which means life giver. Adam could have named her Deathbringer. He could have named her, you know, listens to snakes, but he didn't. He believes God, and he sees in her God's promise of life. He turns back towards her wife, despite the his wife, despite the separation. He moves towards her in reconciliation because of God's word. He steps out in faith. See, even here there is hope. God has not given up on them. And, and throughout this passage, there are hints and whispers and arrows to what God is going to do. So let's, let's look at these seeds of hope. Okay, I'm going to just move through these quickly. But first, we see God's pursuit. Okay, God knows what has happened, and yet he approaches them and asks them questions. Okay, he doesn't ask Adam and Eve because he doesn't know. Of course he knows. But he asks them because he wants to give them the opportunity to confess and draw near, draw back to him. He is gently walking them through conviction. I, I like Tim Keller points out that while God questions Adam and Eve, he doesn't bother questioning the serpent. And he says this is evidence of God's hatred of sin, hatred for evil, but not the sinner. He hates sin, but not the sinner. He wants to extricate them from Satan's grasp and draw the sin out of them. So as we see God pursuing them, second, we see God's consequences. You say, why is that good news? Well, God could have said, oops, let me take a mulligan. Let me just uncreate everything. You know, I'm going to start over without the tree, without free will, and, you know, everything's going to go better. Let me, let me just do, have a redo. But he doesn't do that because that would mean their annihilation and not their salvation. See, the consequences point to a God of justice, but also this thought. Maybe one day, God will figure out how salvation can come through judgment. Maybe there will be a way. He's committed to their salvation. Third, we see God's clothing. Okay, their silly little fig leaves wouldn't do. God was sending them out into a harsh world. And while he would have been right just to let them suffer, God clothes them with animal skins. Now, many commentators, theologians, they see here the seeds of, of the atonement. Okay? God covering over our sins. Now, he clothes them at the cost 
of another life. There's a sacrifice. An animal dies. It's required for their covering. But God is willing to pay it for his children. So we see God pursuing. We see God's consequences. We see God's clothing. And lastly, we see God's war. He's not done with humanity, and he is unwilling to give them over to the serpent's designs. God says to the serpent, I, I will put enmity between you and my people. God is saying the war is on. But it's not just two lines, two genealogies. You know, there's a particular offspring that God is looking forward to. There is one seed that God has in mind. And he says, he shall strike your head and you shall strike his heel. Now think about the image with me, okay? There's, there's this primitive family in the wilderness, sitting around a campfire, and a serpent quickly slithers into the middle of the campfire. There's not time to grab weapons, you know? And so what, what happens? A man steps forward. He jumps off his log that he's sitting on, and he just begins attacking the snake to save his family. The only way he knows how. He begins stamping out. He's stomping at the snake, trying to kill it, and in the meantime, the snake is fighting back. Eventually, the man gets it, okay? He kills the snake, but in the process, he's been bitten, okay? He saves his family at the cost of his own life, okay? That's the image. That's the picture. That's what it, he sacrifices himself for the others to defeat the enemy. Now, friends, this is what Adam should have done. I, I, I mean, I have to wonder, was Adam, when he heard God saying this, was he chastened as he realized that should have been me. That was my job. I was to guard and keep the garden, but I didn't do it. But then did he think, but I, I will have an ancestor. I'm going to have a son who will be better than me. He will do what I couldn't do at the cost of his life. Friends, that man, that seed came. That seed of hope came in the person of Jesus. In Jesus, we have the new and better Adam who at the cost of his life defeated the snake and sin and death once and for all. Do you see it? Here in the garden, in the midst of the death and destruction, the thorough damage of the fall, even here, we see the roots of what God will do to get his people back. I mean, this passage is so important to understanding the whole Bible. I mean, you just read through the pages and you see God's relentless pursuit of his people. I mean, just, just through well, the Old Testament, I mean, you read about pain and struggle in childbearing over and over and over again. You know, Sarah and Rebecca and, and uh, Leah and Hannah and, you know, all these women who struggle, okay, with infertility, in grief and in pain. And then you see God overcoming the curse to give them children. We read about famine after famine, you know, starvation. We see how, how that hunger drives God's people through the plot lines to move here and then move there and move, you know, here and there. And then we see God overcoming the curse and providing food for his people. Every miraculous birth, every miraculous provision of food is a sign that though things are bad, Though the world is dark, God is not finished with his people. He is relentlessly pursuing them. And friends, God is pursuing still. So one writer said those, those three words, where are you? God coming after his people. 
that those may be the best three-word summary of the Bible in the Bible. The whole rest of the book is the unfolding narrative of God's relentless pursuit to restore humanity, now banished from God's presence by the presence of our sin, to God's original intent, unbroken, unhindered communion with him and with one another and with all creation. Where are you? Friends, maybe you hear him this morning calling out to you. In the midst of of your fallen world, he's calling out to you. Where are you? Maybe you hear his gentle voice saying, why are you far from me when I desire to be close? Maybe he's, he's gently convicting you through his spirit, inviting you to confession and repentance. Maybe he's asking you, what have you done? Tell me. I already know, but tell me. Out with it. There's nothing to hide. Stop blaming others. Stop blaming me and come to me. Friends, it doesn't take a genius to see the brokenness in the world, to know that things have gone haywire. But in this passage, we find God speaking to us through the mess. I won't let you go. See, there's no height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He's coming after us. Behind the world on fire is a God who longs to restore it all. Will you come to him? Let me pray.